Well, good morning, everybody. How you doing? I mean, we're talking last week in the tent. I was with a pastor friend uh, having lunch this week, and he said, dude, only 10 weeks in the tent. You know, in the Old Testament, nation of Israel was in a tent for 40 years. I didn't laugh either. I was like, lame. (laughs) Normally, I'm the one who makes the lame pastor jokes, okay? Anyway, yeah, so um, we have been at work getting the new auditorium, the new kids' space ready. We cannot wait for you to see it. I did bring you a picture Um, I couldn't help myself, and so me and a few Keystone friends set up chairs on Friday. Here's a snapshot of the auditorium. I think maybe there it is. Yeah, and we're going to, yeah, I know. We we are going to move the electrical thing in the middle because that's just in the way. But anyway, uh, next week, invite your friends. It's going to be an incredible celebration, kind of a soft launch. Uh, We know that fall is when a whole bunch of friends come back. And by the way, you on Live Space, we're looking for you. And uh, anyway, everybody comes back, so... A few weeks to sort of get everything worked out, but we could not be more excited. And thank you for your patience. Thank you for your generosity. Incredible that we get to do this together. Uh, so for today, we get to continue a series we started last weekend called Creating Your Future. And what I want to do this week is begin with the same question we began with last week. If you were here or you caught up on the podcast, you know, the question is this, what do you want? And not like in the way you ask your little kids, what do you want when they're in trouble? You know what I'm saying? Like, what do you want? Not like that, right? But like, what do you want? I mean, really, when you stop to think about it as you come into the tent today or wherever you are watching online, what is it that you want? And last week we noted it's a tricky question for a number of reasons. But one thing we know for sure, we want it our way and we want it our way now, right? We want to do what we want to do and we want to do it now. But as we said last week, the problem is if we always get what we want in a moment, if we always get our way, then we tend to lose our way. And when we always do what we want to do in a moment, we often find ourselves somewhere we really don't want to be. Uh, We've all had that experience when we've gotten what we wanted and it sort of undermined our future hopes and dreams. I made a list of some areas of life you may have experienced this. There are some of us who got a who we wanted and then realized that that was not the who we wanted, right? That is not the who we were looking for. That's a Star Wars joke. There you go. Uh, Some of us got a job that we really wanted, but then in the end, that job that we wanted that we got became a curse. Uh, Some of us got the car that we wanted or the house that we wanted. And by the way, this week I pulled my my minivan that I've been driving. Uh, It's an 04 Toyota Sienna. Thank you very much. (laughs) Up next to a brand new Bentley at a gas station. I just couldn't help myself. It was such a great moment. Anyway, we got the car or the house we wanted, but then a few car payments later or a few mortgage payments later, we realized that it isn't really what we wanted. And so now what we really want is a time-traveling DeLorean. You with me on this? Back to the future fans in the house? Yeah. We want to go back and like not get what we wanted because we would say, man, when I got what I wanted, that sort of sent my life on, on a path that I would rather that I would rather not have gone down. So that's how we sort of set up the series last week. And what I want to do this week is, is I want to, I want to uh, introduce you to a question that I think can really burn off the fog that often accompanies the pursuit of something that we decide we want now. And it's a way better question than what do you want because this question will enable you to do an end run around the emotions that can cause our heart to eclipse our mind and end up leaving us with a lot of regret. Those moments when we feel an impulse or we get obsessed with something and we do something that we later regret. It's the better question than what do you want, I would argue, 
is this. What kind of person do you want to be? What kind of person do you want to be? And if we could just leave that question up on the screen. We all have things that we want in a given moment. And if we're honest, those things change all the time. But if you pull back the camera and ask this question, I'm convinced it will help you avoid the regret that often accompanies getting what you want in a moment of impulse or obsession. This question is powerful because this is a question that gets after legacy. And not just the kind of legacy you leave when you exit this life and enter the next life, but when you exit one season of life and enter another, you do leave a legacy in your wake. If you're in high school right now, the day will come Uh, And maybe you're heading into your senior year and you can't wait for that moment. But when you walk across the stage and you get the diploma and you're no longer a high school student, you will have impacted lives during your years in that high school. Your legacy will last longer than your physical presence. Or if you're in college, I mean, how do you want to be remembered when you're gone, right? When you walk across the stage, you've impacted lives for better or for worse during your time there. How do you want to be remembered? Or parents, uh, when your kids move out, and and some of us with preschoolers are like, oh, the day will come, right? But if if that's you, I mean, how do you want your kids to talk about you when they're no longer living under your roof? Do you want them to raise your grandkids the same way you raised them? Or if, think about this, um, the time will come where you'll exit your current job. What kind of legacy do you want to leave? When that day comes, do you want your coworkers to throw you a party to celebrate your time with them? Or do you want them to throw a party without you celebrating the fact that they no longer have to put up with you, right? It's a question of legacy. These are the deeper value questions that can push us past surface wants. And I'm convinced that this question really is the key to creating your preferred future. You have to allow values and not wants to drive your decisions. If you're a note taker, that's worth writing down. In order to build your preferred future, you need to allow values and not wants to drive your decisions. That's why we ended last week sort of hinting at this. We said at the end of last week, we can't create our preferred future until we discover what we value. And so because I'm convinced of this reality, I wanna spend some time with this this week and I wanna land with an exercise that really can help you discover what you value. And unfortunately, most people never slow down long enough to really consider what they value, to discover their values. And and no one can discover it for you. You really have to find it for yourself. And by the way, it's an incredible thing to do uh, wherever you find yourself on the spectrum of faith today. I mean, this is one of those conversations that makes sense whether you're a Jesus follower or not. If you're here and someone promised you Starbucks and, and so you're sitting in the chair and you're under a tent and you can't believe we saying you can't get what you want or whatever, and you're here um, and you're still not sure about the whole Jesus thing, this is one of those places where biblical truth impacts life so powerfully, this will make sense to you wherever you stand um, with regards to who Jesus was. This material can be helpful to you. Well, the the challenge, I would argue, in discovering what you value, and it's a big challenge, is that choosing what's valuable isn't natural. Choosing what's valuable isn't natural. Consequently, this problem can't be fixed with new information or better discipline. It's deeper than that. There's an internal conflict going on in all of us that works against us pursuing value and pushes us towards pursuing wants. And it's been that way for a very, very long time very long time. This ongoing battle between what comes naturally and what we value. And the reality is most people never push through the natural to embrace 
the valuable. But those who do, those who figure out how to do this, actually find that it reframes just about everything. And I want that for you, and I want that for me, but full disclosure, it's not easy. Well, the person who best describes this internal battle between wants and values is a New Testament author by the name of Paul. If you're not familiar with Paul, um, he was a first century pastor, but when he first walks onto the pages of history, he's not a pastor and he's not a Jesus follower. He's actually someone who's out to destroy the Jesus movement. Paul was a professional religious person called a Pharisee, who's a Jewish professional religious person. And Paul believed that the Jesus movement was a cancer within Judaism that needed to be stopped. And so he would literally go from town to town with the blessing of the Jewish religious establishment to stomp out and arrest followers of Jesus. But everything changed for him one day when on a journey to do just his normal mission of stomping out the Jesus movement, he comes face to face with the resurrected Jesus. And this changes everything for Paul because the Jesus movement was founded on a physical resurrection. And when Paul comes face to face with the resurrected Jesus, he has a moment where he realizes beyond the shadow of a doubt that he is working against God. And so he becomes a Jesus follower and a prolific writer who ends up writing more than half of the letters that make up the New Testament of your Bible. So Paul writes about this conflict between values and wants in a letter that he wrote to Christians living in Rome, which would have been the capital of the world on the day that he wrote this letter. But in it, he describes the battle that rages in all of us between the natural and the valuable. And I just imagine Paul sitting down in an honest moment of frustration and reflection. Not frustration at them, but frustration at himself. And here's what Paul confesses. Romans chapter 7, verse 15. He says, I do not understand what I do. And just pause. Some of you just found your favorite Bible verse, right? <laughs> Dude, I read the Bible sometimes, or maybe you don't read the Bible very much because every time you read it, you're like, I have no idea what's going on. And it feels like they're talking about things that I have no grid for. This one, you're like, this is it. I got this. I do not understand what I do. Because every one of us could tell a story when we did something that we now regret. And after we did it, we couldn't believe that we had did it. You have this moment, right? It's like the morning after and you're standing in front of the mirror looking at yourself in the eyes and you're thinking, why did I do that? Why did I eat that? Why did I sleep in? Why did I call her? Why did I say yes, right? Why, why so you're like awkward laughter, right? Yeah, why did I do that again? Uh, why did I buy more of those and the answer to those questions is the point of today's message. There's a conflict between what you value and what comes naturally to you. Paul continues. He says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And we're reading this. And, and, and like, if we're not being self-reflective at the time, we want to call a timeout and say to Paul, dude, this isn't that complicated just stop doing what you don't want to do, right? You know what you want, do that. You don't need a counselor. You don't need to phone a friend. What's the problem? But Paul is confessing here that there's something he ultimately values, but he settled for something less. And now he hates what he does. It's important to note he's writing to Christians. And again, he's trying to help them understand that this isn't just his problem. This is our problem. 
Well, let me pause a second and just say something to a few of you. Because if you're honest, as you came into the tent today, you've come to a place where you don't just hate what you've done, you actually have come to a spot where you've started to hate yourself because of what yourself has done. You'd like to blame your parents or your boss or society or culture or the world, but in the end, you know you can't. And, and, and so there's something deep in you that feels like I'm fundamentally flawed. And, and Paul would say to you, I understand. After a while, I hate what I do. If it builds up enough head of steam and frustration becomes I hate myself. And maybe that's where you are this morning. And you understand, you get this wrestling match for you. It's an everyday, maybe every hour struggle. You don't know why you do what you do. And if that's you, stay tuned. Hope and help are on the way. So Paul continues. He says, if I don't, or if I do what I do not want to do, and this next part needs a little context, I agree that the law is good. So in order to understand what Paul's saying here, you need a bit of his background. Paul, as I've said, was a Jewish religious leader called a Pharisee. And if you had said, Paul, what do you feel like your job is as a Pharisee? He would say, well, my job really is to teach the law and to be good. I spend all my days trying to figure out how to live a life that perfectly reflects what God has in mind. I want to be good. But as much as I've tried to be good and as much as I was committed to God's law, I, if I'm honest, I just couldn't pull it off. I knew what I wanted to do. I had total clarity on what I should do, but I just couldn't do it. That's Paul. Now, when we think about the law, we're not thinking about the Jewish law. And the big theological explanation is because we all like bacon. Come on now pulled pork sandwiches, right? But, but so for us, for us, some of you are like, I just was inspired by the Lord for lunch today. Okay, yeah, there you go. Blessings flow. So yeah, um, so when we think about it, we, have, we think of the law as that general sense of right and wrong, and we live with it every single day. Like we all have a sense of what we should do, and at least in concept, we actually want to do it. We're committed to it. We want to be a good person. We want to have better relationships. We want to take care of our money and our financial matters better. We want to take better care of our body. We want to be a good person on the inside. We want deep, rich character to flow within us. And we want to leave a great legacy whenever we go. We know what we want. But if we're honest, we're like, I'm, I just can't seem to do it. I, I get, you know, the New Year's resolution thing. Every year comes around. I'm like, this is it. Line in the sand. No more. Moving forward. You listen to like inspirational music, like Fight Song, that Rachel Platten song that everybody gets fired up about. Yeah, you're like, I have got this thing. And then two weeks later, you're like, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. And what I hate, I do. Right, we all get that. So Paul continues. He says, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Paul's like, I have true north. I know where it is. I know the kind of person I want to be. But if I'm honest, I keep getting sidetracked by these things that I want in the moment. So there's this conflict between what I value and what I want. And again, when, when I read this from Paul, I think, I, man, I feel, I feel better. And for a few of us, we're like, man, I finally found a biblical character that I like, can get, right? Because like Jesus is like perfect son of God, walks on water. That's great for him. That's not really me. This Paul guy, I, I, I think I get him, right? But Paul's point is what we want naturally is often in conflict with what we want ultimately. And what we want naturally now is often in conflict with what we will want later or want ultimately. We get the tension. And the only way to begin to conquer the tension 
is to zero in on what you ultimately value. Now, this truth was brilliantly articulated in a best-selling book that came out in the year 1989. Now, just so we're in context, for those of us that are over 40, 1989 was the year that Madonna dropped her classic album, Like a Prayer. Who remembers? Okay? And the Pepsi video and the whole deal. For the millennials among us, 1989 was the year Taylor Swift came to planet Earth. Come on. That's right. So, um, now, the book is called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And to date, it has sold more than 25 million copies. After today, they will sell a few more because a few of you will be so captured by this idea. You're like, dude, I got to get my hands on that book. Stephen Covey uh, has some powerful insights about how this all works. What I want to do is actually read you a fairly lengthy section of the book, like think two, three minutes, but longer than we would typically read a quote, because he does a brilliant job setting up an exercise that I want to give you as homework as you prepare for next week. And some of you were like, I'm on summer vacation. I'm not doing homework. I think it'll be good if you do. You you don't have to, though. I won't follow up with you. There will be no pop quiz. So here we go. This is what Covey writes. He says, in your mind's eye, see yourself going to the funeral of a loved one. Picture yourself driving to the funeral parlor or chapel, parking the car, and getting out. As you walk inside the building, you notice the flowers and the soft organ music. You think to yourself, I haven't heard organ music in a long time. No, that's my commentary. You see the faces of friends and family you pass along the way. You feel the shared sorrow of losing the joy of having known someone that sort of radiates from the hearts of people there. It continues. As you walk down to the front of the room, you look inside the casket and you suddenly come face to face with yourself. Weird, I know. That's what he did. This is your funeral. Three years from today, just intellectual exercise. This frames what he says next. Let's look at that next slide. He says, all these people have come to honor you, to express feelings of love and appreciation for your life. As you take a seat and wait for the service to begin, you look at the program in your hand. There are to be four speakers. He says, the first is from your family, immediate and also extended. Children, brothers, sisters, nephews, nieces, aunts, uncles, and cousins, and grandparents who've come from all over the country to celebrate your life. The second speaker is going to be one of your friends, someone who can give a sense of who you were as a person. The third speaker is from your profession or work, and the fourth is from your church or some community organization where you've been involved in service. He says, Now think deeply. What would you like each of these speakers to say about you and your life? And then he says, before you read any farther, take a few minutes to jot down your impressions. Now, I read a lot of books. It comes with the territory. And whenever an author tells me to put down the book and get out a piece of paper and do something, do you know what I do? I keep reading, right? (laughs) I'm like, there is no way, dude. Because when I get done reading a book, then I can say to my friends or Randy or whoever, dude, I finished the book. Because the goal in reading the book is finishing the book, right? But I got to this one. When I first encountered this material a few years back, I got to this one and I thought, this might actually be worth doing. To actually think about how do I want to be remembered? And then for me, every time I do a funeral, I'm sort of reminded of this. So hopefully now you will all be blessed with that as well, right? 
Like, how am I doing? How do I want to be remembered? And so what I did is the next morning, after I'd read this section, and I literally put it down. I was like, being compliant. There you go, firstborn coming through. And I sit down with a cup of coffee and my Bible, and I, I do my readings, and I spend some time in prayer. And then I start thinking about what Stephen Covey said. You know, what do I want each of these speakers to say about me? What do I want my wife to say about me at my funeral? What would I want my kids to say about me? What would I want my best friends to say about me? Then a few days pass, and I got back to the book. And what Covey says next, like after you've taken your intermission and come back, is a statement that has been a defining moment for so many people, and I think in part helps us understand why this book has sold so many copies. Here's what he says. He says, if you carefully consider what you wanted to be said of you in the funeral experience, right, or over your dead body, which is why the title is, of the talk is Over Your Dead Body, which I thought was kind of funny and probably no one else did, but that's okay. Um, if you carefully consider what you wanted to be said of you in the funeral experience, you will find your definition of success. Covey argues that the funeral exercise identifies what you value the most. He also says that over the years, as he's led people through this exercise at live seminars and then debriefed afterwards, he says people who do this exercise are generally surprised because their definition of success has nothing to do with accomplishment. It has everything to do with character and how they treated people. And he says, but here's the, here's the tension. Humans, we're addicted to progress, are we not? We love to build things and grow things, and we love to make plans for things. And yet when we do this exercise, sort of fast forward to the end of our lives, what we really don't want the speakers at our funeral to talk about is what we've done or what we drove or where we lived. We don't really want them to mention the money that we've made. And as important as these things are, they're sort of just a means to an end. Our drive to accomplish then really is just a means to an end. What matters most to us in the end is the sort of people we become. What matters most to us in the end is our character. And here's why this understanding can be so transformative. If you can decide the type of person you want to be, it reframes how you think about the things you want in a moment. It literally provides clarity. It can burn through the fog. Here's, here's an example. Um, if you decide you want to be remembered as an honest person, if you want people, when they talk about you, to say, man, when he or she said yes, they meant it, you could take it to the bank. If that's what you want to be remembered by, then that means you'll, you'll do what you say you do. You, you'll do. Or if you don't do it, you'll intersect with them before they realize that you haven't done what you said you'd do, and you'd explain why. If honesty becomes a defining parameter of your life, then being dishonest begins to feel like a failure. And even a little lie starts to feel like a big deal because you're on a path to becoming something and becoming someone. And anything that sort of pulls you away from that path will feel like a failure. It's costly to you to be honest. But if that's what's driving you, then you'll make the sacrifice. Sometimes it means you'll leave money on the table if you're honest. You'll have the potential to wreak havoc on your reputation if you're honest. But see, in the funeral exercise, nobody wants to be remembered by someone standing up and saying, you know, Jim, Bob, whatever, he always won. No matter what it took, he was a winner. 
He was a winner when he had to cheat and steal, right? He always came out on top. Now, we want to be remembered as people of honesty and character and integrity. And if we want to be remembered as someone with integrity, then our priorities necessarily shift. Our priorities reframe our wants and how we respond to opportunities in a moment because priorities always flow from values. Priorities always flow from values. So once you understand what you value, you set that as your true north compass, then your priorities can flow. There are, are 20 things that are important, but there's only one thing that can be most important. And you can't prioritize what's most important until you discover what it is. I love progress. I love getting things done and moving things forward, but I value integrity more. By the way, um, and this is a little bit of a foreshadow where we're going to go next week. If you were to ask the question, what does God want ultimately for you? The answer to that question has everything to do with cultivating character within you. It's not that he's opposed to you succeeding in the eyes of the world, but what he really wants is to cultivate a character like the character of Jesus within you. Uh, There's a letter that Paul writes to Christians living in a Roman province called Galatia, and he's trying to help them see this. He's trying to say, you know, what does God want? And they grew up in in a world where they often thought God or the gods wanted something from us. So he's sort of flipping it on his head. He says, if you want to know what God wants for you, if you want to know what he wants to cultivate in you, if you want to know what he wants to grow in your life after you say yes to Jesus, here's how he describes it. He says, the fruit of the spirit, in other words, when you partner with God to live the life he's designed for you to live, you know, you say yes to Jesus, his spirit comes to live in you in some sort of mysterious way. Here's what he wants to do in you, in partnership with you. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He wants to cultivate character within you. And the shocking moment, for if you've never considered this, the shocking moment, and if you grew up in a religious environment where you didn't realize this is what God wanted to do for you, you just thought God wanted to control you and get something from you, it's like you start to realize that God wants for you what you ultimately want for you. He wants to create character in you that is very much the same as the character you want to create in you when you think about how you want to be remembered in the end. But if I'm going to be a person of increasing love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, then I'm going to have to say no to a whole bunch of stuff I want in a moment. And the promise for followers of Jesus is that God will partner with us and empower us to change beyond what we can do through discipline, behavior, modification. He wants for you the same thing you want for you. We're gonna talk about that a little bit more next week, but, but just that simple idea can totally reframe how you think about God and totally reframe how you think about sin. So uh, we'll talk about that more next week again. But for today, here's what I want you to consider. If you're really gonna get what you really want, if you're really gonna create your preferred future, you must discover what you value. You must discover what you value. Because discovering what you value keeps you from getting in the way of the life you want. Those moments where you trade what you want now for what you want later. So back to our question, what do you want?
This week, a challenge, a little bit of homework. I want you to try to discover what's most important to you. Maybe even do the funeral exercise. Take a few minutes and just think about it. Because I'm convinced that's a step that will move you towards creating the life you really want to live. Because, and I'll end with this, when we discover what we really value, we are far less prone to settle for what we merely want. Would you stand? And I'll close this in prayer. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you are a perfect father. We thank you that you want for us what deep down we want for us. We thank you for loving us even when we fail. We thank you for the honesty of Paul so many generations ago so that we would know that even in the middle of sitting in a puddle of regret, we're in good company. Thank you for inviting us to move forward step by step to follow Jesus and to find the life we were made to live. So I pray for your grace and your peace to be on us all. In the matchless name of your son, the name above all names, the name of Jesus we pray. Everyone said, amen. Next week, friends, we shall reconvene in the new room. All right, we'll see you next week.